This edition of Sounding Board was recorded on the 23rd of May 2018, shortly after John McDonnell was on the television talking about Venezuela. Welcome to Sounding Board with me, Nick Elliott, and me, Andrew Elliott. Remember to go to soundingboard.com if you want to download any of our previous editions. Okay, so uh, kettle has already been on. Kettle's on. Teapots filled. Sorted, half sorted. Just waiting for your thing. I don't want to say the name. Can't say the name. My personal digital assistant in a small round box over there to tell me when to pour it into these cups. Okay, okay. That's how tea works in this house. <laughs> so, what do you want to talk about? So. So it's never real socialism, is it? Oh, okay. Bit of. Uh, no, I mean, exactly what I'm talking about. Don't you? Bit of Don McDonnell. <laughs> well, he's done it again. He's done it again. He's he's. Um, I think he, he was on Venezuela again, isn't it? I can't remember which TV show he was on. This was either this was either Piston or um, whatever the BBC one is with uh, without and Andrew Marr. Uh, I don't think it was. I don't think it was. Oh, was it or Sunday politics? Whatever it, it was. was. Anyway, whatever he he went he went on and he Proper said. Proper broadcast media. Broadcast media, and he said. Venezuela wasn't socialist enough. It's I don't think he's exactly said that, but certainly that's what he meant. Well, he said no. He, so, he so said it's, it, I don't think it was a socialist country. And no, he said, he said it, it may have been under Chavez. That's but under least, Maduro. Yeah, under Maduro, he wasn't socialist. Or you know. Yeah. So we'll just add that to the list of other countries that have well, they, never they, ever. They, they always do that. I mean, these you know these kind of intelligentsia did the same in Russia. In, yeah. In, in in the last century, they did with China. Yeah. And now they're doing it with Venezuela. Yeah, um, it's just it's always it's always socialism. I mean, McDonald, people like Colin Corbyn, has been banging on about Venezuela for years about how it's oh, this yeah. new way of doing things. Venezuela is leading the way, showing the world how to. How well, to they both put their name to. Um, uh, they both put their name to some motion in the House. Um, they did about about Maduro um, and uh, Venezuela. Um, and how that was going to be this, you know, glorious socialist paradise, <laughs> which doesn't exist. But, well, uh, so anyway. what's what's interesting to me is that that the you know the, the, you can't really argue that Venezuela is at least quite a bit socialist. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's the, well. I think um, the people on the on the left uh, like to think that it's almost a binary. Um, state. Don't they? Well, so this is what I'm getting at. So the, the dose response ratio of socialism, I, I think that's what you call it, um, is is an odd one because, I mean, I think some, something that I'm in agreement with the socialists is that a 90% socialist state would be absolute hell. Um, ah, so you, the, the, so they, they, you know you can you can give more and more whereas they think and it's rubbish you, until it's 100. Yes, and whereas they think that last 10 percent makes it into the paradise, yes. rather than what we're saying is well, that the more that, socialism you get, the, the worse, worse it gets. You are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we could talk a lot about socialism this evening, but I think you, I think you've been you've been well, needing on re- regulation. I have. Um, well, ma- mainly actually the response to regulation. Which is what I want to talk about. Okay. Uh, and this is again, I'm coming from my um, uh, uh, from my telecoms background, and this actually, um, I might have to get into a, the the specifics of the kind of products that um, uh, that I provide in the company that that I'm CTO for, um, because BT, everyone knows who BT is, uh, come out with new products. In my view, it's a direct response to the latest changes in regulation that Ofcom 
made and it's their way of essentially trying to get around the regulations. And from one angle you can say, ah, oh, well is that them not showing innovation and as a result of, of the regulations? Um, but essentially what they're doing is providing products that I've provided for the last 10 years and I didn't need a regulation to tell me to do it. And in fact, in the entire market, it's fairly low demand, hence I'm not BT. So it, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be done at the so, scale they're talking about. So are BT now competition? BT are now competition. Well, they will be when they finally get their products actually out there in 2019. Um, so can, it, you, can you kind of get the, get the jump on them and say, look, we, what are this absolutely. new stuff that BT absolutely. are doing, well, look, this, we yeah, already did it. And this, yeah, this is a longer conversation we'll have when, we, when we move into the other room, but um, as far as I'm concerned, if it makes what I'm doing mainstream, that can only help me. Of course. Um, but it's a lot more complicated than that, which is what I want to go into. Well, should we pop in there? Let's do it. standard kind of recording area now aren't we we are coffee we are. chairs with, with cups of tea there with, with our cups of tea although i have to say i, I think there's i think Did there's I sugar snuck some sugar i think there's again. sugar in this one i don't think you've stirred it but there's definitely it's definitely slightly sweet yeah sorry about that you think i'd know by now i've only known <laughs> you for all your nearly, life nearly 38 years yeah so um nick you uh well you wanted to talk about regulation on the basis that some yes. new regulations come along and BT are trying to... Well, I'm not too sure, not, not really trying to get around it, they're okay, trying to so avoid being penalised by the regulations. Well, that? yeah, that that's what I think. So, um, so do you want let to me before, tell you how, before, how we get there. Before, yeah. before we start, do you just want to give a bit of background as to what your business is? Yes, so I'm the CTO, Chief Technology Officer, of um, a, a pretty unique company in the UK and certainly in the communications industry. Um, pretty unique or unique? Absolutely 100% unique, not a little bit unique, not too much unique, sorry. Um, but we, we are an ISP, which is Internet Service Provider, but we're also a software company. And we use software to make our internet connections better. What we also do is over-engineer connections for our customers. So why have one line, your standard broadband line, FTTC, ADSL, whatever you want to call it. Why have one of those when you can have two? That means if one of them has a fault, you're still online, you're still going. And it also means that you've got the bandwidth, the speed, if you want to call it that, of both of those lines together. Over the last 10 years, we've been taking that further and further and further. So have as many lines as you like. Don't, why not? Why stop at two? Why stop at just ADSL or just fibre broadband FTTC? Um, why not add any type of connectivity in, in any combination? So I could have a, a broadband connection down my phone line from yeah, the standard ADSL connection. Yeah. And I could also have a cable broadband connection. Yes. And you could bond the two together yeah. to give me a faster um, faster connection? Uh, this is where sometimes people get into trouble for using terms like speed and fast. We could give you a higher bandwidth connection. Right, okay. But that's not quite the same as speed. 
But yes, for, for the purposes of people listening to this and for everyone's parlance, when they get it wrong all the time, faster. So if I'm downloading a file, the file would download faster. Yes. But it wouldn't be, an, it wouldn't have an overall top speed. The speed is the time it takes a packet from to get from one end to the other. Bandwidth is a measure of the size of the pipe, and this is where people get it wrong. You've got to think about think of it like plumbing. Think of it like water. Yeah, the the water doesn't get any quicker from one end to the other of the pipe, but if you have a bigger pipe, you can get more water from one end. So to the my other. latency would be the same if I was playing games. It wouldn't improve that, but if, but the, if I wanted to download a huge file. The file would download quicker. Yes. And if one line went down, I could still download the file, play games, make voice calls, etc. Because the other line would not be affected. Is that exactly. correct? Exactly. Exactly. Right. Okay. And so, and um, I could do that with more than one line, more than two lines. More I could do two, it with ten three, lines. four, ten lines. Um, at the moment, the most we've ever um, aggregated, bonded, whatever the term you want to use, um, is nine lines together, uh, and that was nine ADSL lines. Um, we currently have a number of um, other connections out there of eight lines. Um, the, a really tasty one is eight FTTC lines, eight fiber broadband lines running to a school. Schools, hotels, they are the ones that use the most um, bandwidth um, because of the number of people that are there working all the time or, or using the service. Um, and so, yeah, we, we can give proper business grade, high bandwidth connections as well as the SMC, the added resiliency, because it will just carry on with as if nothing has ever happened, just a reduction in that total bandwidth if a line goes down. And in any combination, because for example, the ADSL network might go down, but the FTTC network probably won't at the same time. So if you actually have a combination of differing technologies, then you decrease your risk in an even more greater um, fashion than you do just by adding additional lines. If you go from two lines to three lines to four lines to five lines, you are reducing your risk. But as soon as you add in a second technology, you're reducing it even of more. Of course, so if, 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 you're, if all your lines are provided by the same technology and that technology goes down for yes. whatever reason. Yeah, the and there are other factors as well. I don't want to make this into a technology. No, system. that's fine. Um, but suffice to say, over the last 10 years, uh, what we've been doing, our company name is Evolving Networks, by the way, if you want to go and look us up. What we've been doing for the last 10 years is continuing to innovate in that space in order to make the best internet connections that we possibly can for our customers. And you know, we are primarily a business to business service provider. So these are businesses getting in touch with us, but they are businesses of all sizes. We've got everyone from the one man band working at home through to parts of the NHS. So you know, we've, we've got everyone, BAE systems to the corner shop. Everyone needs an internet connection. Every business pretty much needs an internet connection. And most of them will agree that they need to stay online. And coming back to this, um, I suppose, a location argument, what you can get and how much bandwidth it is depends solely on your location. So you might have been lucky enough to have an area that's been upgraded by BT to give fiber broadband, but you might not. You might be in an area that has good 4G mobile signal. You might not. And, and so the, the, the connectivity we can deliver to a customer depends on where they are. So someone in the centre of London may have more options than someone living in the Outer Hebrides. Yes, albeit we can get onto the concept of, um, of Wayleave um, and how uh, in the centre of London 
nobody wants to dig up the road and nobody wants to let you put a, um, a duct in their building if you're on you know floor number eight of, a, of an office block so you'd think that uh, London is a great place to serve our experience is that it can be very very difficult actually because of other legal issues but yes this concept of you might live in on a farm and therefore you're probably not going to get as good a broadband um, signal uh, as you are in, a, in an inner city urban area um, and so I have I have recommended to businesses that they move. I've said, absolutely, I can provide you a connection. It will be stonkingly expensive because I've got to dig a whole brand new piece of fibre 50 miles and across an airfield. So it's going to cost a lot of money. And they're going, that's absolutely outrageous. You go, no, that's how much it's going to cost to serve you. So you might want to consider moving your business. You, you have to consider your internet connection just as you will consider the hiring of staff and, um, and you know, the, 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 the physical office that you are in, it's access to transport links or other uh, facilities that you as a business need. And so uh, we have to have that conversation fairly regularly where we say to a customer, I can do this for you, but it will be very expensive because all connectivity is location dependent, either in its distance from the part of the network that you need to connect to, the green cabinet at the end of your street, your telephone exchange, or some other hidden node somewhere, um, or just by virtue of being in a difficult location because you're at the top of a mountain, or on the other side of a river, or something like that, or, or even on the other side of a busy road. All the time we are having to shut roads in order to get new lines installed. And these are new telephone lines, bog standard telephone lines, where Obviously, shutting the road to dig it up is a bit disruptive and you have to get the council involved and you have to you know, get all other sorts of uh, legal things sorted out. So it's a complicated thing. The, the entire industry is, is pretty complicated, but we've spent time trying to engineer out all of the problems of the UK broadband network where we can. And so we provide a fairly expensive service in order for it to be the best internet connection you've ever had. And does anybody else do this or is it just you? There, there isn't anyone else who does it in the way that we do. Um, we, we, generally speaking, compete with people selling more what you would call regular internet connections. So people selling lease lines, which are the big, you know, um, big, fast, single connections still uh, for businesses. Um, there are some people who've dabbled in bonding lines together. Generally speaking, they've come and gone. Uh, we've been around the longest um, will be the last that's that's the way we see it but that's the background we you know we've we've been a part of the industry that that has been essentially overlooked so far by the regulator Ofcom so can you tell me a little bit more about the regulation that you've come into contact with recently? so recently we have been looking into um, the regulations that are I mean they've been consulting for years uh, regulations surrounding automatic compensation uh, and so yeah, this has been in the news the you know, broadband and communication technology and BT actually have been in the news more in the last five years than probably the, the, the 10 before that. Uh, so people have probably heard about this and they probably had someone from which on the radio saying how important it is that people get compensation when something goes wrong, which is what everyone from which always says about everything. And what Ofcom did was did some studies wasted some time, asked some people, including the big boys in the internet space, your Virgin Medias, your BTs, your Talk Talks, all of those, 
and they came up with um, uh, some new regulations that are underpinned by the Communications Act, that are underpinned by law, that say if your broadband line goes down, then after two days, I think it is, you have to start giving automatic compensation. The customer doesn't need to ask for it. This is, you will start getting an amount of money. It's something like £20 a day for every day that it remains offline. Um, but you've already been down for, for two days. You've already been down for two days, exactly. And and so that actually encompasses most broadband faults that get fixed in a normal amount of well, time. Well, I, I would certainly hope that the vast, vast majority of faults would get fixed within two days, unless a bulldozer goes through the cabinet at the end of my street, for example. Yeah. Um, and even then I would expect them to replace it within... There are teams in, within BT that are there to get around the country at a moment's notice to do exactly that. Um, so, so yes, and also the other the other automatic compensation um, is for uh, a delay in installation, in initial installation. So, if I am the ISP and I say to you, uh, "Thank you for your order. Um, we are now placing an order for your broadband, and it will be installed uh, in exactly ten days." Then again, if it's not on that tenth day then I have to start paying you compensation. So is there is and there any regulation day. about how quickly you have to do it in total? No, nope, it's all about the confirmed date. So you can you could just say we will do we will do it within a month. It'll probably be 2 weeks, but we'll do it within a month. Yep, that's absolutely one of the way rounds. Uh why rounds it? The other the other way that I thought was uh, was eminently obvious is that there's no such thing as a confirmed date. I am only giving you provisional dates. I need you to be to be there on that provisional date just in case the broadband gets installed. Oh, it has. Fantastic. We're going to start billing you for it. I mean, it's nonsense, isn't it? And this is, this, is the, this is the problem with regulation, is that if you were to try and make it actually um, effective, it would have to be so complicated as to try and exclude all of these potential loopholes. But of course, by doing that, you kind of, you, you know, you stop any innovation anyway. Um, uh, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so we've existed in a situation whereby we are protecting people from going offline. That's the that's the primary issue here. I mean, the, the idea of, of, of your installation being delayed and that being something you should compensate for, when, when the only reason that your installation is going to be delayed, the one and only reason that any ISP has for your installation being delayed is because OpenReach, the people that go and install a line for you, don't turn up. I mean, that's it. So why this isn't something that only occurs with OpenReach and that we as a business don't have some kind of automatic... Well, let's be clear. We do not have automatic compensation from OpenReach. So when I place an order for a, a copper line, a standard phone line to get installed and, it, and the engineer doesn't show up, I as a business don't get compensation. Yet apparently I'm supposed to compensate the end user, the person who's bought it from me, because of a failing in my supply chain. And for our, for our special friend, OpenReach is owned by BT. Oh God, there's a whole, you know, but, but a whole a three hours only, worth of I'm content only, on this. I'm only mentioning that because it's, it, you know, you can argue that it's in their interest to occasionally get things wrong oh. for their other, for their, you know, for their external customers, but not their the direct customers. Yeah, I mean, op OpenReach is the name that came around um, uh, 10 plus years ago now um, for the the bit of BT that deals with the wires. Um, and certainly when you used to get a BT engineer come around, it's now 
an open reach engineer. And they have gone through several degrees, several um, uh, separations, if you like. They've, they've slowly separated OpenReach, but it's still part of BT Group. It's still the only people who invest in OpenReach are BT Group. It's still quite nuts. Personally, I think if they were going to split OpenReach um, from BT, should have done it 20 years ago, rather than this slow, painful transition that they're going through. Um, but yeah, they're the, they're the only people that can send engineers. I can't send another engineer to look at a telephone line. I have to send OpenReach. If OpenReach don't turn up, well, that's, that's tough shit for me as a business. But the end user, apparently, as mandated by an Ofcom regulation, should get compensation for that. And they've presumably consulted BT on this, and BT think it's just fine. Absolutely. Uh, apparently, it's up to our, uh, the ISPs to negotiate with uh, OpenReach or their upstream wholesale providers. Uh, on, on how they should how they should get this, and so it's okay for you to negotiate. Why is it not okay for everybody else to negotiate? The well, thing? quite. Or, or buy from a, a you know buy the from someone poor who poor consumer can't possibly expect it to be used to use their brain or their guile or whatever. So that that's the automatic compensation um, regulations. Now they've now come into force, but they actually only. Um, the, the, crazy situation whereby um, it's actually only like the big four ISPs that actually need to adhere to them. So actually, as a business, I don't need to adhere to them. So why is that? I, it's just the crazy way that Ofcom do things um, is they've, they've come up with a, a, I can't even remember this specific term, but it's like a non-voluntary voluntary agreement. It's, it's bizarre. It's, they asked the, um, the big four to come up with a plan they came up with a plan, Ofcom rejected it, came up with our own plan and said, well, as long as the big four all adhere to it, then the world will step back. And this is what they say, is they say, okay, this is, this is us being light touch regulators. Because as long as we hit, you know, 80%, 90% of the customer base, then it'll be fine. That's light touch, isn't it? That's light touch, apparently. And obviously it doesn't really make an awful lot of sense. It is good for, a, for a, um, an operator like me. And, and, and um, you know, and our, and our company um, uh, is, you know, as a minnow compared to, to BT um, and obviously what they're saying is that a, a, a company with uh, uh, only a few thousand customers compared to one with hundreds of thousands or millions of customers will be encouraged to provide something it we may not be mandated that we have to sign up to it but would we get custom if we uh, if we don't offer that same service so they're introducing the, the idea of competition where again there already were ISPs that offered compensation. It, it, it wasn't like it couldn't have been done. And so if you wanted that, then it would have been there in an ISP to do it. In the same way as if people want a resilient connection, they come to Evolving Networks to buy it because that's what we sell. So, so going, back, going back to BT then, what have BT done in response to this regulation, so this is this is pretty new. Or what this are they is, doing? This is this is what they've been announcing um, this week in a joint uh, venture with EE. So obviously EE is part of the BT Group as well. Um, so is Plusnet. In case again, users didn't know this, uh, and users honestly, here's me with my tech customer brain on. Listeners, um, listener, our, our dear listener, if you didn't already know, Plusnet, the ISP is a wholly owned subsidiary of BT, and so is EE, the mobile network. And they haven't rebranded either of those, but they are part of BT Group. I didn't know that about EE. Really? They bought them like two or three years ago. Right. 
Yeah, they were. What what they what they decided to do, you know, ten years ago when they sold off O2, um, they uh, they obviously went ah maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Everyone's going to want to converge all their services, and we're going to want to send sell the sell sell TV, telephone, uh, mobile, and broadband in quad play as they call it. So why the hell did we sell off O2? Well, because they, they proceeded to buy E to fill that gap. Because they, they were one of the very first. Uh, yeah. You know, 20 BT Cellnet probably 20 years ago it was, it was BT well no before, BT then, before then it was Cellnet yes and Cellnet was half owned by BT and, and Securicor that's right and then so there was Cellnet and then there was Vodafone and that, yeah. that was it yeah and then, Orange, then Orange came along well then you, then you had MMO2 who owned O2 but that was yeah again gets all complicated that's that's all, that's all in the past but they uh, they bought EE uh, in order so that they had a mobile network again. which was an EE was T-Mobile he was T-Mobile and, and Orange, Orange together. Yes. Because they were working on the same bandwidth anyway. And do I you think. know what? That was one of the stupidest mergers ever because what they decided to do was keep the, the Orange brand, keep the T-Mobile brand, and introduce a third brand called Everything Everywhere that then very quickly they decided to just be called EE. And the three or four or how many brands just clashed all over the show for a long time. So actually, um, having BT buy them, it just be EE from BT. Did simplify it a bit, but why they don't just call all of it BT? I, I don't know. Why it isn't just BT Mobile now? Um, That's, is that a branding thing, do you think? People have got a little bit sceptical about BT these EE days? were one of the most hated of the mobile networks. So I, I, they, they okay. got fined by Ofcom um, for the way that they treated their customers. So I wouldn't have said that it was a brand you particularly wanted to protect, bearing in mind the brand of BT. I mean, everyone hates BT, but they don't change that brand. So it, it seems odd to me. Um, but obviously they are positioning them in slightly different ways. So they have come out with announcements on products that we won't see until 2019. So we're recording this, you know, coming up for the midpoint of 2018. Um, so it's going to be at least six months before we actually see these products. But these products are for what I would call multi-line connections. Now, the reason I say that, and I don't say bonded or failover or whatever, is because there are different characteristics to different sorts of multi-line connectivity. What, what we sell is fully aggregated connectivity um, with clever software that's distributing your data across all of the circuits at once, utilizing every bit of bandwidth from all of the circuits all of the time, keeping you online in the event of failure, and also prioritizing each of those packets of data so that your VoIP calls, if you're gonna use a VoIP service work, or if your streaming video um, needs it, that'll be prioritized and whatever. So for example, my VoIP calls are probably gonna be at a higher priority than my video gaming. Yes. Right. And um, you probably would want email to be one of the lowest priorities. You, know, you, you say that to a business customer, you say, well, what, what would you like to be prioritised? I say, well, my email. Obviously, my email. And you say, no, I'm going to put that at the bottom of the list. And it, it's a great you know, icebreaker conversation to say, and this is why. Email, people are used to having in uh, an email client, like Outlook, other email clients are available. And whether it takes an extra second to appear in your inbox or not, you don't care. Likewise, for its 
appearing in your sent items and getting delivered to the person you send it to within a couple of seconds. If you're making time savings there, you do not notice them. You're being protected by the, by the cloud, by Outlook. You're not having to wait around. You can go and do other stuff. You click send, you move on, you do something else. It happens in the background. If there's well, a second email, delay... Email is, is, is not urgent anyway, is it? It's not, you know, it's far and forget. It's not, not like, not, it's not not like a telephone call. No, it's not a secure conversation. It's not, a, um, it's not something that is established end-to-end -end and then maintained. So, yes, if, if on your telephone call suddenly you have a second of silence, that's what you notice, or a stutter or robotic speech or something like that. Likewise, if you're streaming a video and it pauses to buffer, then you don't like that either. So this is about being smart. This is intelligent connectivity. And there is, to a certain degree, some networks have tried to prioritise data, but it normally doesn't work very well because it's being done on a, on a, in the core network. Whereas the product we provide, it's doing it end-to-end. -end. It's got a clever box with clever software that we send to the customer. Clever stuff in the core, they talk to each other and are able to prioritise and be smart with the data. So can BT do any of that? No. None of it? No. Okay. So what BT have announced So is, what are they doing? So what they're, BT they're giving, announced, you, they're giving you a few lines. No, no, very specifically. Not, they're not giving you a few lines. No, they are giving you one broadband line and one mobile connection. So and I can't have two broadband lines? No. No, they've decided to productize this in a very specific way that is completely inflexible. What if my mobile phone's somewhere else? No, 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 no. They're giving you a a, a, a SIM in a dongle. This is this is a, an integrated, separate service to your mobile phone. Okay. That goes into your home hub or whatever you want to call it, or is a little USB stick that you stick in the side of your home hub. So you've already got your your router, your modem, whatever you want to call your hub that is connected to your broadband line, your 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 fixed telephone line, and then they are adding a separate mobile service that is not the same as your mobile phone onto the side of that so that um, if your broadband line goes down, the data will then start flowing over that mobile connection. And is this, is, will this be EE? Uh, yeah, absolutely. This is, this is them utilising. This is what they're calling convergence. This is them saying, right. finally, we're going to use these networks together. I mean, that's, so, so for a start, that's not going to work in my house because... I your EE signal is terrible. I can't get an EE signal, and my house is a bit like a Faraday cage anyway, so it's, yeah. it's useless. Yeah. So, so Well done, BT. Brilliant. Yeah. So unless you do it um, in what we would call uh, a multi-VNO way. VNO? Virtual network operator. So uh, basically everyone is a virtual ne network operator. There are very few um, companies, ISPs, Internet Service Providers, that do everything themselves. Most of them are wholesaling from BT. There are some companies that also um, have put um, equipment into some telephone exchanges because of the, what to be what often we call the deregulation that happened um, uh, uh, 15 years ago. Um, but again, though there are only few and far between, your talk talks and your zens and people like that. So again, as a provider, you have to wholesale from them. So if you want to provide a service, it's ultimately going to be served in some way by those companies, albeit there is some networking involved to get from, from their network and the lines that they provide to your network and then you sell that on. But John Lewis Broadband isn't much about John Lewis, it's more about BT. 
In fact, I'm pretty sure that the John Lewis network is actually part of Plusnet's network. They wholesale it from Plusnet. So they've just outsourced even the building of their network entirely to Plusnet. So they don't own any infrastructure whatsoever. Um, Virgin Mobile. Virgin haven't gone out and put masts on street corners. They have just purchased wholesale the capacity of someone who has, who has already bought, built the infrastructure. Again, we all know there are only a handful of actual mobile networks. So anyone else saying, look at me, I'm selling it, Tesco Mobile. They're just buying capacity off someone else. They will probably only buy from one network because then they've got the economy of scale to get the price as low as they possibly can. I think Virgin bought two, didn't they? Didn't they, didn't they have the, um, I think when they, I don't know, they still do it, but originally they They, they moved. They, they did move. They were between. buying from both, so you'd get like the best of both worlds in your signal. And this is what we do as a provider. So what we do is we will put as you know, many lines as you can afford into your uh, building, but we will make sure they're running over different underlying networks. So we are a virtual network operator, but instead of being a virtual network operator with just one wholesale provider, we are doing it with four or five. So if one of those wholesale providers goes down, exactly, still online. Because what we've talked about so far is just a line going down, and we've talked about a technology going down, but a differing technology staying up. In my experience for the last 10 plus years in the industry, the vast majority of faults occur in an ISP's network. So what we do as Evolving Networks, we haven't invested in these networks at all. We sit on top of them. We have created a new plane to transcend the standard level of an ISP to operate above them. And so as long as we always operate above more than one of them, and in this case, you know, we, we're, we thought it was great when we had two, and then we decided we'll call ourselves a triple VNO. And now it's got so big that we just have to call ourselves a multi VNO because we are always looking for new providers to integrate into our service. Oh, so you can hedge your bets and minimize risk. And... It's fantastic. If we have a problem with Zen, I'll move all my Zen lines away to another company and the end user customers don't know about it because we've been able to do that transparently to them and they haven't had to make any changes whatsoever. But one of their lines might have been Zen's. Actually, let's be clear, Zen Network's very good, so we're probably not going to do that anytime soon. But it's it's the concept of, of being able to do that. But no, this is BT so going, providing yeah, so, a so product going, going back to BT, that is only the BT network or only the E network. And so, okay, I, I don't actually know how integrated they have made those networks over the last two or three years, but probably not very because these are two humongous companies. And so integrating their networks is probably going to be quite difficult. Um, they will have some level of integration now because of what they're doing. Um, so there could be an issue whereby something actually does take down both of those circuit services, even though one of them is cellular. Um, we had an instance about five years ago where a major um, telephone exchange went down. Um, in fact, it was, I mean, I say amusing. It started as a fire, um, but then, uh, and that took some lines down. Uh, then proceeded to a very large flood while they put the fire out <laughs> and they were a bit overzealous <laughs> in their fire suppressants. Quick, get more fire. <laughs> well, and, and, and literally they flooded the exchange. And, um, and then Godzilla came down, took a few more lines out. Yeah. But the problem was that every single mobile network in the area operated through that telephone exchange. So not only did all the fixed lines go down, but all the mobile phones in the area went down as well because that was a a hub uh, 
point of the network. It was a so key all node. the eggs were in the one were basket. in that one exchange basket exactly. So wherever possible, you've got to you've got to be diverse with your with your networking. So yeah, they've come up with a product that is for failover purposes. So it doesn't use your mobile service until your broadband goes down, and that's obviously to keep you online. But also, they will send you this on day one. So even if it takes 10 days to have your line installed, as far as they're concerned, they've got you up and running on the mobile service. And then when the broadband line kicks in, it will take over. So there's an argument that they are trying to get around the automatic compensation rules because whenever there's a broadband fault, you won't be offline because um, the, the mobile service will kick in. And likewise, there won't be a delay to your installation date because your installation date is whenever you first plug in your, your SIM card. But you say that, if if I if I buy this product from BT yeah. and the main line goes down, I'm I'm going to be down because I can't get a signal. So what happens then? I can't. I, they're, they're not. You know, they may have given me a dongle, but I can't get a signal on it. So I've got no connectivity at all. What happens then? Do I get compensated or do I not get compensated? Well, this is the problem, isn't it? What if I'm in what, the, what, what I'm in the outer, outer Hebrides or somewhere or in an yeah, island so somewhere? There are, there are undoubtedly places where this will not work. There are there are places right now that um, that can't get broadband or can't get broadband to any usable speed. Having said that, there are more locations in the UK that can get ADSL broadband that can get running water. So, you know, and people manage all right without that. But yes, this won't this won't work everywhere, but the concern is that this is BT I mean I'm using the term trying to get around the regulations. Um, you could argue that this is this is a good thing. This is them respecting the regulations and saying, no, I'm going to keep you online. And this is what we've been saying. When when customers of ours have started saying, well, am I going to get automatic conversation when one of my lines goes down? Our stock answer has been, no, absolutely not, because you're still online. And we treat this as one overarching connection that can flex as necessary. But I can see a situation where Ofcom decide, ah, right, okay, this is going mainstream now, therefore we need to regulate it. We need to somehow come up with a, a new formula for what happens if a proportion of your service goes down. And, and that's going to be a nightmare for us if that happens. But I can see it happening. I mean, it might take three or five years for them to work it out, consult on it, and then come up with something. But what they won't do is consult the innovators in the space and the people who've been doing it for 10 or 15 years. Who will they consult? They'll consult the big boys. Now, I have responded to um, Ofcom consultations and they take an awful lot of time and energy to do so. Um, but at the end of the day, I can't arrange to have a meeting with Ofcom and lobby them for several months. Whereas, you know, BT, it's an open door um, in these situations. So I am concerned about that. Um, the EE product is slightly different. The EE product they're coming out with, um, and I think there's a Plusnet product that might be different again, but the EE product is more akin to this term bonding. Um, what they're using is a technology called multipath TCP. And what that does is, and you can set it in a couple of different ways, you can set it to use all of the bandwidth of all the lines all the time in a kind of round robin fashion, or its default is actually to use up one connection before it then starts using the next to, to fill up the, the gaps, if you like. Um, so you have, if you have, you're lucky enough to have 20 meg broadband and 10 meg 4G, 
then you can get 30 meg. But if you, at the time, if you only need 5 meg, you'll only get, you know, you'll, you'll only use your broadband line. Um, but only for, and this is where it gets a bit technical for, for our listener, only for TCP traffic. And that's fine for web browsing. Um, that's, a, that's about it. I mean, okay, yeah, um, they're, 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 you know, Netflix and things like that. Those services are over TCP. But there are plenty of services that aren't. So things like voice over IP. Voice over IP. Emails are different, I think, aren't they? Yeah, there is some TCP involved, but it is on, it is a different, SMTP is a different protocol. Um, and uh, and certainly uh, a lot of streaming, anything that's streaming, tends to be a UDP-based service. So again, without needing, you know, without our listener needing to know how those things work, the point is, it is not aggregating all of the data all of the time. But just going back to what we spoke about 10 or 15 minutes ago, you do do all that, though. You can aggregate Ab- properly. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're not trying to create this kind of bonding light service. Um, and so, so there's an argument over, are they staying online if they can only access some things over the connection? Uh, uh, yeah. Is it really resilient if it's not resilient for your phone calls and it's only resilient for your web browsing? So... There's a number of questions I have. Okay, so before we before we rewrap this section up, it sounds to me like this regulation is has enabled BT to provide a solution to a problem that didn't exist because you already fulfil that need. Yes. So nothing innovative has come of this. Nothing at all. In fact, they've they've no. just they've, they've 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 designed and are building an inferior product on the basis of this regulation, which is cost, costing everybody money. That's a, that's a definitely a good way of putting it, I think. Um, it obviously gives people more choice in the marketplace, and oh, it, it, it might expose people to the ideas of resilience that might actually help um, evolving networks in this case, because it puts resilience and a multi-line connectivity on the map. But there's a big concern that it will then put multi-line connectivity on the radar for Ofcom as well, and whatever they regulate will then get worse. Okay, let's uh, let's wrap it up there and, and come back in a moment. Okay, and welcome back. We are in your kitchen again, Nick. Set timer three and a half minutes. Set timer three minutes and thirty seconds. Starting now. Second timer. Oh, what's it doing now? Stop the first timer. Oh, well, that's useful, isn't it? This is technology for us. Anyway. Okay, well, we're back in your kitchen. I've managed to... You haven't put sugar on my tea, have you? You have no sugar. managed to stop no sugar. me putting sugar in your tea this time. You can put some milk in. I am going to put some milk in um, for our second brew. We're starting our second um, segment. Yeah, I've been, I've been ranting a lot about BT and about, um, about the comms industry and about Ofcom. Um, so can we just talk generically for a moment? So what happens with this with this regulation? Because you said you mentioned earlier, you touched on the fact that it's been not going on for years, but they've been researching it or conversing with companies for years. Is that what normally happens? Yeah, what they do is they they'll commission research, um, then they'll normally make a statement and say we think the market is broken and this is why we think we're probably going to have to do this. And four years later, they will do that. They absolutely will do. If Ofcom come out and say. Be a problem, then, as I'm, I'm sure most regulators do, 
they'll make sure that they're still working a few years later by working towards that assumption. And they will gather research and they will ask the industry, and in fact they will ask for responses from anyone uh, as to whether they think this is a good thing or not, and regardless of how many people say it's a bad thing, they'll go, yeah, we think we need to do this, and then they'll come up with it. What they'll sometimes do is they'll let the industry come up with something and they'll, they'll kind of hold a big stick and go, if you don't come up with a good voluntary scheme, then I'm gonna... And that can, have, that can work for a few years. Um, but um, normally what happens is that that then turns into full-blown regulation um, because they don't feel that the providers have done, have done enough in their view. And, you know, what, what gave them the expertise to do that? So how do, they, how do they decide in the first place what a customer does or doesn't want? Well, but what happens if the customer wants one thing and then does something else if, when they are asked in a survey? What if the number one reason, which it is, by the way, for people choosing their ISP is low price, yet the number one thing they moan about is when it goes offline? Well, of course it's going to go offline. It's cheap. Well, you get what you pay for. I imagine. You I imagine what you pay I for. I imagine people who buy for cheap, buy who buy cheap cars, probably mind about their suspension more than people who would buy a Rolls Royce. Exactly, exactly. So, I, I think that what they tend to do is cherry pick the the research um, to to fit the assumption that they've already got in their minds. But if people if people are still buying this this cheap product, they're not. They're not be really saying, oh, it's, you know, it's going down all the time. But if, they, if, if customers are still buying it, surely that's the market working. We'll see if that happens again in a few seconds. Surely, surely that's the market working. Well, I think it is. I think the market working is, ten years ago, stop. <laughs> was that the second that one? That was the second one. Um, I think the market working is, ten years ago... Um, I got approached by someone I had um, worked with in a supplier-customer relationship um, who said to me, ah, Nick, you've just quit your job and, and you're going off to do your own thing. Um, I'm going to do the same. Well, why don't we set up a company that does this? And I went, yeah, that sounds like a really good idea. So we did. And ever since, we have been continuing to plough all the money of the company into continuous development of a solution that makes the internet connection for customers better. We were already doing that. But actually, I'll, you know, I'll be honest, there's not a huge demand for it. Otherwise, we would be the size of BT. So we are, we are led by demand. And in fact, um, we've been able to, um, to aggregate um, mobile um, services with broadband technology in the way that I've just described um, that BT have announced they want to do for years and years and years. Do we get a high demand for it? Not really. Why? Mobile network's not very good. <laughs> because people don't want to pay more for it. Because, um, you know, all sorts of reasons. And, and so we're demand-led. We don't sell very much of it because not very many people want it. Now, we do see demand, very much so, for multi-line connections. It tends to be fixed-line connections. We sell more of the same line aggregated or bonded together than we do of this differing technology. We, we offer it to our customers, and, and, and in the way I've described before about lowering risk, but actually the, the number one thing that we would say people want 
is speed. Okay, bandwidth is the correct term, but they want speed. And so if you say to a customer, good news, that, that four line connection you've got at the moment of four ADSL lines, good news. We can upgrade some of those to fiber broadband because BT have just come to your area and they've upgraded your cabinet. Now, what we say to the customer at that point is, um, we'll upgrade, say, two of those lines for free. Fiber broadband is a more expensive product, but we'll do two of those for free, and then you've got two ADSLs and you've got two FTTCs. If you want to upgrade more, then you can pay for that. If you want to, you know, obviously drop down the number of lines because you've got more bandwidth, then that's something you can do at the end of your contractual term. But what we get more than anything is people going, I want to upgrade them all. <laughs> um, that, that's great, they all then pay us more money. But in actual fact, they are creating a less resilient service from the one that we freely upgrade them to. And we, and we remind them of that. We say, leave an ADSL line in. I know the FTTC is 60 meg and your ADSL is 6 meg. But leave one of them in because if the FTTC network goes down, if locally something happens in your cabinet where the fibre broadband technology is, your ADSL will keep going for you and it will stay online. The vast majority of our customers say, no, don't worry about that. <laughs> and they don't want to lower their risk in that way. But we're demand less. That's that's of course, what we but do. Yeah, you, 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 you know, you, I'm not going to force it on my customers. Exactly. So why is Ofcom forcing it on the industry? But you know, capitalism is is providing a service or, or good that somebody else wants. You, you, Otherwise, you, you, they wouldn't pay for it. Exactly. Just just before we before we move into the other room, so I think you this this kind of starting up a company, being CTO, blah blah. You're firmly in the middle class now, aren't you? Oh yes, yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, I think I'm, I'm still. I would say I'm, I'm just kind of like a well-off working class. Oh uh, really? Yeah. Because uh, really, oh no! If you open that fridge, you'll find hummus. <laughs> I, I, the, the the amount of chickpeas does, that does this that, family does that, um, does eats that, now does that make you, does that make you middle class? I mean, is it is it is it what you eat and what you drink? Because I mean, I'm, if I'm 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 kind of working working class I don't manage anybody I just you know I'm quite expensive what I do I've got to you are let's be very clear you earn way more money than I do but I don't but I'm, you I'm, don't consider yourself to be middle class well I, I, I think middle, middle I tend to associate middle class with kind of sort of management and that kind of that kind of thing really well I don't mean, we could talk about this for a, for a while because not this not class just, system as it was, is not the same as it is now. It's it's not like we have this this huge aristocracy. Um, there's no there's no particular feudal system going on anymore. Um, and as to your kind of classic, um, you know, A B C designations of, of demographics, I'm I'm not sure it's as easy to define anymore. Well, no. I mean, so there's there's definitely so just to to, to, to be clear, there's definitely there's definitely the political class. And everybody else. Yes. So, so political political class are, 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 are in and of themselves. Yes. Are a completely separate entity. I would say. Yeah, they are. They are an elite. If you want yes. to, if you want to call it that. There's the. Have you have you heard the, about the new class? I have. I have. Well, explain this to our. To well, it's, it's all, I, I believe well, Martin Durkin has, has has talked about this at, at length. Um, it's it's intelligentsia. It's your yes. your professors. Yeah. And your anthropologists and, and, and these sorts of people. It's it's 
you know, university lecturers, these yeah. kind of people. Yeah. Um, you know, this is this is a new class. They like to they're a bit snobby, a bit elitist. They like to think they're above everybody else. The people who voted to stay in the EU. Yes. You know, they're, well, they're often very very highly educated, and they've got a chip on the shoulder because they're not earning as much as the plumber down the road. Because they did something that they considered was worthy, but that the but market nobody wants, considered nobody valuable. Wants. Yes. Yeah. Whereas. You know, you study anthropology to a certain level. The only thing you're ever going to be is an anthropology teacher. Well, and I know certainly um, I have um, on occasion needed um, in an emergency a plumber. Uh, I have never in an emergency needed an anthropologist. <laughs> but, you know, you, you have specifically, um, whether it's by choice, luck or whatever, you, have, you, have, you are in an area of the market that pays very very well and 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 so you know that that suits you that suits you very well but you know you, if you were working in an area of the market that didn't you might choose to retrain to work in an area of the market that did pay more yes of course i mean i i, I so just to for our special friend i i write software yeah um uh, and i do other things as well i kind of you know I, I do i do i do coach and i do train teams and help organizations to Transition from did you make a lot of kind of came in through the through the testing part of, of software development. Oh yes, yeah, 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 yes, I did. Yeah, yeah. Well, originally, originally it was it was analysis, it was business analysis. Yeah, and I moved on to testing. Yeah, and I moved on to writing code because people who write code earn lots of money. That was that was the plan. Yeah. So you did see. So you saw of course specifically. I, did. Of course I, did. Um, I want to earn lots of money, so I'm going to do something that people consider to be valuable. Yes. And that's what you do. Yeah. I for. For me, um, I, yes, I've always, you know, I've always known that being in the technology business is is more valuable than than, than most things. Um, but if you're talking about the, the difference, I mean, yes, you you do have a company, but it is a you know you're you're a, you're, a, you're, a, you're I'm a you're, bloody director. Aren't you're I? a director, so uh, this oh, is what I'm getting. This is what I'm getting at. But you're not you're director you, of one. You don't employ people exactly. It's you know, you're you're doing it for all sorts of. Uh, all sorts of legal and contractual, you know, benefits. Um, you're essentially a freelancer, but you know, yes, you, yes. You, you've got you've got a company. Um, I mean, I I started. Um, I mean, I started my first company late uh, later than you. You you. I was two thousand and two. Well, I was two thousand and three. So we've both had a company since then. Um, but and again, the company I set up was to uh, do extra work on on the side to my full time job. And it was web development, so again, writing software, um, and uh, and so made made a fair bit of money. And that that then grew and grew and grew, and I started using it for IT consultancy. And that's when I quit my job and decided that I was going to earn more money, which I did. Um, but setting up Evolving Networks, I mean, let's be clear, Evolving Networks is you know majority owned by by my business partner. Uh, it's his idea. He's the one who sells it. Um, well. We have people to do that for us now, but he came to me and said, "I can sell this, but I need you to actually do it because it's technology, and I ain't got a clue." Uh, and so together we we created this, and I could be earning an awful lot more. I could have earned an awful lot more over the last ten years, and I have willingly taken a pay cut essentially in order to do this because it's massively fun creating a company and building it up. And starting it where there's just two of you working in your respective spare rooms, faking a larger company to the outside world, and then after a couple of years, hiring your first person, and then buying your first office, and then hiring more people, and you know, 
16, 17 of us now. And that's great fun. And it's great fun coming up with something that's disruptive to the rest of the market. I want to be poking the likes of BT in the eye with, hey, look, I've been doing this already. You know, right now we're also providing services for large businesses um, that, um, that we're competing with very large companies, the likes of Cisco in the US um, and, and VMware. And I want to be disruptive. That's where I find, I, I, I find this fun. And I trade money for, for that. So I've chosen to be this type of person running this type of business to a degree. Um, but whether that makes me middle class because of that, because I've got the drive to run that, and to, I think you yeah, manage people in middle class, and it's part of <laughs> Well, we can uh, we can continue that debate another time. Should we move into the? We, well, let's let's move into the uh, into your new room. Hello again. Right. Okay. I I want to say that I may have stolen that line about anthropology and plumbers from Martin Durkin. I, you know, you, you, you brought him up. And I, know, and I think I probably mentioned, mentioned anthropology, you mentioned because, anthropology it was, because it was in the back of my mind. It's too good a line not to repeat. But let's be clear, that was one coined by Martin Durkin. Um, and I think, well, he, he probably said a number of times, I heard it on um, Daddy Pop podcast. Yes. And if you want to uh, listen to more of that, he, he talks at length about the new class in in the Daily Pod podcast, and it is it's a very good listen. Yes, absolutely. Um, so we've we've veered onto uh, onto class there um, as a result of you saying that because I'm um, you manage people, you're middle class. Because I'm that's managing, right. as as that's I it, say. and that's it, managing people. <laughs> that's all it is. Well, that's, that's certainly you that's manage a, people. That's they might not be direct reports, but you manage people. No, I'm a servant leader. I I help people to. You know, to be more efficient, to eliminate waste, I give them suggestions. They only do stuff that they want to do. They only. You sound all lefty now. <laughs> Don't do that to me. <laughs> yeah, I class. I'm paid lots of money to do that. Paid lots that, of money, that, and and well, this is this is the thing, isn't it? Um, is is class now um, based on the amount of money that you earn? And as it to to a degree, you know kind of always has been uh, or, or earn or have access to so you know obviously you, you there were lots of there were lots of yes. upper class people who didn't earn much money yes had lots of land and often actually struggled to keep their you know their, their houses and their land going which is one of the reasons we don't have a big aristocracy anymore yeah yeah and also I was no I'm sorry I, I, I paused for a second I was thinking that I, I think I'll need to double check this but I think when when you know, when families come into lots and lots of money, statistically, it tends to only last about three generations. Right. Okay. Okay. And then, so it's it's, it's so not, when there's an injection of money in some way, yes. shape, or form, nor, normally it lasts about three generations, and, and then and then that's it. Right. Um, so 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 money does. does you're cycle. not talking about new money versus old money here. You're you're well. In fact, you're only talking about new money. Yes, you're you're talking yes. about when there's new money, it doesn't yes. last very long. Okay, that's interesting. And I think I think a lot of that is is to do with, you know, people perhaps not having the motivation because they've already, you know, the the the, the children and the children's children have already got money, so they're perhaps less motivated to, uh, you know. To, well, you to can't control your children's well. children's children do so. 
No, but they're, they're, they're going to be less motivated. They're not going to have the drive that the, ah, the previous people had to make money because they already had it. Born with a silver spoon, so to speak. Yes. Right, okay. Okay, whereas not having money is a motivator. And so another interesting statistic, and along the same lines, but kind of the opposite, so that when you have, uh, when you have immigration, you have immigrants come over, their children do very, very well statistically. Right. Very, very well because right. they've, 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 you know, they've, 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 they've seen their, they've seen know, their the kind of their parents come, you know, who, who've obviously been. Um, the, the, know, the struggle to, for want of a better term. Exactly, exactly. Uh, the, the, or at least the change that they've had to. Yes. They've had to go through. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, so their children do are very, very highly motivated. Often do very, very well. well I'm, a, I'm a firm believer that people need something to push against. That's uh, if, if if life is too easy, if life is too simple, then you tend to stagnate. Uh, you do. The, the best of you tends to come out when you're under some form of pressure. Um, and, and, and it's about recognizing that and not letting it turn into stress. Um, that for me is, um, is, is where you get your best. Uh, your it's best kind of, work. it's just treading that line, isn't treading it? Treading that very fine line. It's it always fascinating. Every single employee we have had or have now, and I'm sure that we'll, that we'll hire in the future. Is, is like it's like a little sociology experiment every time you introduce them into the um, into the group um, and when you're dealing with a small company and you know, we're less than 20 staff um, adding another person can change the entire dynamic um, and each person does react differently to stress and to pressure and to the amount of work and you get different amounts out of them that's why it's really I mean, it's, it's really really important to hire the right people because once, yeah. once they're hired if you need to change the way they work in any way, then it's very, very hard to do that. Um, it's much, much easier to hire the right people in the first place to to build a team. It's yes. one of the reasons why if I'm if I'm if I'm building a team, um, which I you know I, I, I do on occasion, um, I'd like you to don't manage them. You just build them. Correct. <laughs> there, there is a there is a difference. definitely definitely not middle class. <laughs> but it, I you know I like I like to choose a team. Do you it? like brown bread? Um, what's is this a middle class thing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, yeah, now, yeah. Now I'm echoing Mickey Flanagan. We, we don't go to the the, uh, the the restaurant anymore. We go to the restaurant. Oh yeah, the um, <laughs> the, the Tesco's finest. Is it, is it fine enough for me? <laughs> anyway, I've lost what I was saying. Yeah, I like to, I like to build my own team and yeah. not just get parachuted in and say, "Here, sort these sort these monkeys out." Yeah, it's it's never easy. Though. Yeah. Um, so we've gone from. Uh, but just going back to, to before, sorry, just to interrupt again. Before we were we were talking about class, and before you move on to something else, yeah, I've heard a few other definitions of, of classes as well. So okay, and I, I can't for the life of me think of who, who who said this and who kind of hypothesised this, but he categorised people into different classes, but not around you know how much money they earn and whether or not they like brown bread or whether they manage people it was or you know lots of chickpeas in the house exactly it was yeah. lots it was lots of things around how they kind of their attitude towards things how they manage their own life right uh, their views and different things so okay. for example the what you would call the upper class were people who looked to the future um who were thrifty who perhaps saved money who kept themselves fit who weren't, and uh, you know, this this kind of thing, and there were like lower class people who would, for example, just live lazy, you know, day by day. Uh, their teeth would Is be it? very very bad. They'd be, you know, they 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 
they, they wouldn't have a good attitude towards anything other than the next five minutes or the next week. And he studied these and he found out... So this was just broken down into upper and lower and nothing else? Well, there, there, were, there were different were, categories, but right, obviously, okay. you know, at the ends of the scale, you had, you had yeah. the, you know, the upper and the lower. And he, he studied these people and, you know, he, he, he studied people in different areas with different amounts of money as well. And the, the people who he categorised as like upper class, whether they started from a poor background or a rich background or whatever, always did well. And the people who had the, you know, who, the people who were thrifty, who were saved, who, you know, who yes. looked after their teeth, who kept themselves fit, yeah. would always do, would always do well. And the other people, regardless of how money they, how much money they had or whatever, yes, because you can be bad with money. Exactly, would always do badly. Yeah, comparatively, yeah. they'd either lose money or they, you know. They'd, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another another way of looking at. Yeah. Well, I mean, I remember when, um, and again, this I'm sure was came out of some study or some university or some some um, other. Um, other um, facility or function and it was on the BBC website a couple of years ago and it was it was this is the new way of um, determining your class and just you know fill in this online survey and click a few buttons and, and all of this and oh, we'll do you like museums you. and that kind of thing well well I, I, I don't remember that do, one but I remember do you, do you it being about with, who you know yes and so do you mix with doctors and judges exactly and, and it being you know if you know a lawyer then I'm tip you a slightly more middle class or but if you know a teacher maybe slightly lower class and all of all of this was uh, was done how many how many people in trades you know did you know versus how many people in this in this concept of professional jobs that's crazy though could it, you could be some 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 cheap accident lawyer or you could be a teacher at eton yes absolutely it's meaningless absolutely meaningless. absolutely and so well it was weighted in some way so the point was, was how many of these people because um, I, I remember, I remember doing that. But the classes yeah. were different, weren't they? they and I, but I, could, I couldn't, I couldn't think of, I couldn't think of anybody in the, in these kind of upper class things that I, you know, I socialised with. Yeah. Because at the time I was thinking, yeah, I can, I can, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bump myself up here. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone thought that when they, when they <laughs> I did couldn't, this. I couldn't. I don't, I don't know any lawyers. I don't know any doctors. I, you know, I, there's none, none, You know, all, you related to lawyers and doctors. Yeah, but it's, it's it's they happen to live on the other side of the earth. Yeah, and it's it's in Singapore, so yeah. This is this is the problem, though, isn't it? How far how far do you go? Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't remember the name of the class that it put me in now, um, but I certainly I think it's I think middle, I, at least middle. I think I tweaked. Well, no, they weren't called that though. Um, but I, I seem to remember tweaking it to see what else I needed to be, what, who else I needed to know in order to bump myself up to the next level. And it was something like, if I, if I did know a lawyer, then, right. then I'd be bumped up to the I was on the cusp of, of a couple of them. Hang on, you've got, you, so you're, you're better educated than me as well, aren't you? You've got A-levels. I do have A-levels, but that's where it stops. Yeah, um, middle class. And you've got quite a few GCSEs as well, class. haven't you? I was the top of the school, I'll have you know. Yeah, but you're new class. No. You're, border, you're bordering on new class. You, how dare. Just because I found these things easy, doesn't mean I'm of a particular class. I didn't class. find them hard. I did not go to university. I just didn't turn up. Or, <laughs> or I didn't bother. Well, that's fine. That was that was your decision. I did both. I'm happy standing by, by, by my decisions to be working class. You should stand by your I middle class rare. decisions. I am No, come on. Come on. If we're going to have a middle class indicator, it's going to be going to university. Yeah? Neither of us went to university. Most people are very surprised when they find out that I haven't been to university. But 
in IT, well, I, well, why would you want to learn something that somebody decided to put in a series of exams or lectures from the technology industry from 20 years previous to where you're working now? It moves too fast. I know, it's crazy. There was, there was one, um, so there was a young lad on my team a few months ago who was just, I think he was, he was just on work experience and he was doing his A-levels and he came to work with the team uh, and... So this was just like two or three weeks? Yeah, just a few weeks. He was here for a few weeks um, and he was brilliant. He was really, really, he was really, really keen. He was doing a bit of JavaScript front-end stuff, but he was good enough to, that he could just work they with the team, work on his own. Hide him, yeah. And he was going, he was finishing his A-levels, he was going to go to university for three years and... Well, probably four. Or probably four. And he, you know, he, he won't be as good as if we'd have said, come on, work for us for four years and you'll have four years experience which is yes. going to be worth more yes. than an IT degree now, well worth more to you know in, in real in real terms I mean so some some people I mean I know lots of the jobs um, lots of IT jobs mandate that you have to have a degree but they are they're I, wrong I wouldn't go for those jobs no, that I means the person running that IT function doesn't understand IT um, yeah I remember, and again, I suppose this, this comes back to our kind of political journeys again that we'll talk about one day. Um, I remember very distinctly saying to my friends and family, um, probably to you as well, that I, I am not going to university and I will be earning, I am, I am, I am going to be earning more money than the people when, they, when, when my friends come out of university, I'm going to be further ahead. And it being a target for me, it was an incentive for me. I didn't want them to go and get a qualification and then be able to step into a better job. Um, and specifically, I, I just knew at that point there that experience counted for more in the field that I that I that I'd chosen and that you know I had some ability in. Um, I just hated school, and you just hated school. Um, I mean, I was done. I was absolutely done with education as well. Um, I. I absolutely sailed through my GCSEs and got, you know, some near perfect results. Um, I didn't do as well at my A levels because I decided to have some fun more than actually study. And so I knew that my, my days were numbered there. And I'm sure there were a lot of people um, that, uh, uh, that had, well, I want to be singular again. Our dear listener may have been someone that has gone to university and had a very good time. And that's fine. Um, and there are some degrees that you need for certain types of jobs. Um, you definitely don't in the IT industry. And the number of people that I've interviewed that have had a degree, it's certainly not been something that we've ever mandated from any of our technology jobs. Um, and occasionally you go, oh, okay, IT degree, let's see whether he completely wasted three or four years or not, or she. Um, and, um, and, and almost certainly, there was nothing of any value they did. I, you know, I, I, I'm always intrigued when I get someone who's done something, certainly recently, and we, we like to hire people that are quite young. We use the apprenticeship scheme a lot. Um, we were apprenticeship provider of the year in this, in this region um, a couple of years ago. Uh, loads of people we've had come through that scheme and then ended up becoming senior managers in our company. So we like that a lot. Um, and I always ask the people if they're talking about their A-level course in IT or their degree course in IT that they've come with, um, and, I, and I probe them on the, on, the, on the modules and the exams and the aspects that they trained in. And never once has anything relevant ever been, ever been talked about. Well, it's, 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 it's Do I can just finish that yeah, point? Yeah, sorry. 
and every single person that has come to us, male and female, albeit predominantly these are, you know, it's a male dominated area. Um, every single one that has come without any IT qualifications, other than, you know, the nowadays IT GCSE is just what you, you know, what you do is buy GCSEs. Other than that, all of the ones who have spent time outside of work and school and just sat in their bedroom on the computer coding and researching and doing their own things, they are all the ones that have got relevant experience and a drive to learn and to do more. Well, that, see, to, that, that's, that's the thing, isn't it? It's, you know, it's the sort of people who, like you say, probably coded when they were kids because it, they enjoyed it and because it was fun. Yes. They do it in the evenings. I mean, you can, you can learn things like you can learn design patterns and coding principles and stuff at, you know, at university. Absolutely. But, then you can, but you can learn that from a book anyway. Yeah. Um, if you're trying to learn, if you if you want to go into, let's let's say, in fact, I was I was going to say front end, but front end and back end now. There's one of the most one of one of the most. Let's be very clear for our dear listener. Uh, what we're talking about here is when we're talking about writing software. So the front end is what you would interact with as a user. You're clicking on things and you're typing and you're touching screens and all that. That's the front end. Okay, so let's let's so lots of software is is websites. Yep. Um, so or web based. Or web based. So the, the front end would be the website, like you say, the forms the that you fill in, app. the you know the, the the buttons that you click on, the the, the web page. That's the front end, um, where everything gets calculated and stored and all the the brains of the you know of what goes on. That's the back end. Um, and there's a language called JavaScript, which was very, very common language. Traditionally front end, but now you've got uh, Node, Node.js, which yeah. is JavaScript on the back end. That changes so often, and that's changed. That's changed fundamentally in the last year, at least once, possibly twice. Yeah. So there's no way that university courses are going to kept up with that. No. Well, um, for a start, how would they know? Exactly. Sat there not in the real world and I'm, i don't mean that in a in a necessarily a derogatory sense i, I mean oh, that they are you not can, you can go, yeah i'm happy to say that they don't live in the real world <laughs> but it, that, that phrase is used to um to connote that all the time but the the point is is that they're not exposed to it automatically on a daily basis as you would be in a business where you need to stay abreast of of new technologies so anything that changes that quickly uh, cannot be taught in that way and again that that brings me round back round to regulation again um, because it's the same for the technology industry you kind of can't regulate it because it moves too fast and I do have a worry that um, that Ofcom will go okay mainstream multi-line resilience multi-line for bandwidth etc 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 we better start regulating that now because otherwise consumers will get a bad deal in some way, shape or form. And, and do you think they'll actually stifle innovation and creativity? Of course it will. Of course it will. And I suppose this is what I want to end that particular part of that topic on. And I know we've meandered on to class and education and come back again. But the point is that, well, I'm going to ask you the question and you obviously know the answer. Who pays for the regulation? Oh, the consumer. The consumer. If the company I work for has to abide by a regulation, that costs money. It costs money to 
But they pay for they pay for it in a number of different ways. They pay for it in that everything is more expensive. They pay for it in the fact that they're not getting better products because innovation has not been allowed to yes. yeah to come into force. It's well, let's take let's go back to to basic automatic compensation, shall we? So if the company has to fork out twenty pounds for an event of some kind, then where does that twenty pounds come from? It comes from the rest of the consumers, including you. The price of your service has to go up to make sure that it can cope with all the twenty pounds that need to be paid out when there's a problem. Well, they'll just go. Presumably, they'll just go on on statistics and they'll guess. Okay, well, the average, you know, the average person will go down six times in a year. At, at, you know, at twenty pounds yes. each. Therefore, we'll we'll add another hundred and twenty quid. So um, there's a new um, there's a new technology. Um, I'd be interested to know if uh, any of our dear listeners have heard of called GFAST. G.FAST is how it's written. And that is the next broadband technology. So we've had we've had ADSL, we've had fixed um, fixed bandwidth ADSL, 1 meg, 2 meg. We then had ADSL Max, which came up to 8 meg, which is a, uh, an improvement to the broadband technology. Then we had ADSL 2 Plus, which is another improvement to the technology, which put up to 24 meg. Then we had an improvement in the technology and a move closer to the customer in FTTC fibre to the cabinet, which is otherwise known as VDSL, ADSL and VDSL. So because it shortened the distance to the customer, it made the service faster and it used some different technology as well and more frequencies and techno babble like that. The next iteration is called GFAST and it uses even more frequencies on this copper line uh, and it is designed to go even closer to the customer again. So how does that how does that work? More cabinets, cabinet outside your front door. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? Um, so this technology, which has not been made by BT, this technology has been made by um, other companies out there, um, is designed um, to be in remote nodes, for want of a better term. Um, and in fact, the term fibre to the remote node is is one that's out there. Fibre to the basement is another for um, uh, a high-rise block of flats or whatever. The point is that in order to get closer to the consumer, you need more fibre-optic cable, which is expensive to, to, to lay and fit. Um, and you almost certainly need to dig new, new trenches and put in new ducting to do so. Um, you also, the closer you get to premises, the further away you're getting from other premises. So... You know, you've, you've got a cabinet, your classic green cabinet is somewhere. Uh, they tend to be placed where they can serve the most number of consumers. But if you want to get try and get closer to some, you're going to get further away from others. Well, so, so you need there, more of them. So there's a, there's a, so, so there's a cabinet outside my estate? Uh, yes, there um, is. And that actually serves a number of estates in your area. It doesn't just serve your, your road. It serves a number of roads. But you are very close to yours. Pretty close. So, how close would these new ones be? Right. So, that, let me let me finish the point, which is that in order for the majority of people to benefit from GFAST technology increasing their speeds, they would have to be closer than they already are. Now, there are people who are close enough that if all you were to do was put the GFAST technology in the cabinet. They would get a, a faster service. Well, that would probably be me so because I'm, you, I'm quite close. And for me as well, the street that I'm on also has a green cabinet 
right at the right at the entrance to it from the main road. So, so just, just you and I, for our, for our, for our uh, dear listener, my brother and I live in a in a, a, a new, township, a new township, a township, uh, which is basically a, a big ring road. It's a one mile loop of a road. Uh, that has with a lots of, of estates, housing estates coming off it. The term estate is often used in a derogatory sense, but this is a fairly well organised. It's a very well off area, isn't it? Really, in a part of this town. Um, but so there, there, our there, there, area, there are a number of a number of housing, private housing estates off the ring road, but only a, only a very few cabinets. We're talking we're talking a good kind of fifteen hundred, two thousand houses, but there are only two cabinets serving it. One near you, one near me. One near you and one near me. We we have chosen well <laughs> in being close to our cabinet. Um, so if it was retrofitted onto those cabinets, you and I would do well. People furthest away would see no benefit whatsoever. Now, that is exactly what happened when the fibre broadband rollout happened as well. The people closest to the cabinet did well. The people furthest away did not. Um, now... The alternative is you stick these nodes, they're quite small, um, you know, these, these capsules, albeit they need to be powered and they need fibre to get to them, you could stick them on the top of a pole, you could stick them in a, um, you know, under a manhole cover. Um, it, it, they're designed to be put closer to premises. And, and how, do they, how, do they connect? Away. how do they connect? They connect with fibre. So they're still using a copper line to get into your house. It wouldn't be broadband if it wasn't... Actually, no. no but how, 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 how does the node connect to the cabinet? Via a fibre cable. It might, so not, connect, still it might not connect to a cabinet at all. It might go straight to the telephone exchange via a piece of fibre. It is fibre to a node. So they still might have to dig underneath the roads to. Absolutely. To right. Well, and when you see, um, you know, go, go on holiday to the coast, uh, into a into a little rural village by the sea, uh, with its tumble down villages, lovely little cottages where the road's never been dug up and there are um, telegraph poles everywhere and crisscrossing above you all of these cables linking all of the houses together how the hell are you going to get fibre to there to then serve all of these different these different well, places? so i was just again i was just putting it back to my own situation in that i so i, I live in in one of these housing estates and i live in like a mini cul-de-sac that's just yep. myself and my. You've my got a, a kind of shared drive situation. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, but it's but it's mine. Oh really? So, uh, the, the, so the, the, your, your neighbour drives over your drive in order. He has a he, he has a right of way. Right of way. So he he, he has a right oh, of way to, to turn around. There's a little bit to turn around, and then to, to drive out because it's not big enough to completely spin a car around unless it's a, a oh, taxi. Right. So that so you you are you allowed to park in his turnaround area? So to speak. Well, so it's or not rather, his turnaround area. It's but it's he has a right of way there. So yes. if you if your car is there, then you have to move well, it. Well, so nobody can park there, really. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, we we both do on occasion. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But well, um, this is what yeah, when reasonable people talk and live. Of near course, of course. But but yeah. So there, there's 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 my drive. Yeah. And then there's his drive, and then there's this communal area, which is like the cul-de-sac bit. But that is mine. It, 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 yes. it is owned by me. So yes. What, so you what would happen if, <laughs> if they said, right, we want to put a node here, and I say, hold up a second, that's mine, and you're not doing it. Well, this is this is where Wayleaf comes in, uh, and so you would be able to say no, because that's your land. Well, that's I mean that's good because I I believe in property rights. Yeah. Um, 
I probably wouldn't. Let's just you know, let's just go say, back. Re- reasonable people, I would, you know, I'd, I'd, well, I'd want it myself well, as well. a bit of price for it, and yes, if it benefited you. Um, just going back to how BT are rolling out this new service, because um, I can't even remember why we're talking about this in the first place, but... Regulation. It was regulation again, wasn't it? Um, the uh, the rollout that BT are doing for GFAST, um, it, all they're going to do is bolt something on the side of every camera. So yes, so you and I, that would be you fine. And, you and I will benefit from that, um, but um, lots of people won't benefit at all. And um, what once again, we'll end up in a situation whereby, and this is this is kind of why it still keeps cropping up in the news, why connectivity and broadband has been in the news a lot. There have been these rollouts. There have been publicly funded rollouts um, the, uh, the the Broadband Delivery UK, BDUK, um, part of the um, Department for Culture, Media and Sport, been in the news lots ever since the coalition government came in because they were basically giving money to other providers, i.e. 90% to BT, in order to, to, to speed up this rollout of fibre broadband. Um, but what it's done without ever completing a rollout of all the other previous technologies that improve it for other people, they keep they keep rushing to put the next next thing in. Now it's all about oh let's put FTTP fiber all the way to their premises. Let's put GFast in because that's faster speeds. But they never finish the old rollouts, so you just end up with more and more and more differing technologies. And the people in those areas that are um, that are suffering the worst, generally speaking, don't get the technology, the new technology. So how many more the old technology? No. So, the rollout of ADSL 2 Plus, so this is the up to 24 meg service of, of ADSL before fibre broadband was ever um, talked about, hasn't finished yet. It was supposed to finish at the end of 2017. It was then supposed to finish at the, tw- the end of 2018. There are still telephone exchanges in this country that have still only got ADSL Max from BT. This and is no other provider is providing any other service in there. So this is like people being stuck on Windows 95, isn't it? Yes, and not having a provider. Now, why does that happen with other providers? Because it's not commercially viable for them to do so. If the telephone exchange only serves 500 properties and not 50,000 properties, then you're not going to get the return on your investment by putting the new broadband technology on there. Hang on a minute. Don't we have a national provider that's job it is to level the playing field and is, you know, this this old public sector organisation? Yes, we do. They're called BT. But what they do, because they've been privatised now, um, is look for a way to do it in a commercially viable way. Ofcom are there to try and force them to do things in such a way that they then funnel money into um, providing So do you think they shouldn't do that in a commercial way then? No, what I'm saying is that if you've got Ofcom there saying, hang on, BT, you've got to make sure that everyone gets a, a better service, then surely the least they should do is make them finish the old rollout before they start the new one. Or if you're going to target, if you're going to target somewhere to put the new technology in, then you go, do you know what? You, you and I, who are lucky enough to be close to our cabinet and we have close to 80 meg broadband now in our streets, that's good enough for quite a while. And do you know what? Uh, you don't hold need up a second. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> don't you think it would be fairer to go and um, put that technology 
into um, someone who can only get two meg at the moment, no. even though it costs more money to do so. And then when everyone's usage has gone up again, then you start getting back around to giving it to the other people. Now he's sounding like a socialist. I'm saying, <laughs> if you're going to do it, you no, that's terrible. No. <laughs> For the greater good, comrade. <laughs> well, um, th- then you start getting into, um, why do you live there? Why do you live in this area that doesn't have good broadband? Well, that, that's, that's my point, isn't it? You know, you know, Hang on a minute. This area is beautiful. Well, I then, am then in an area of outstanding natural beauty. I live in a lovely picture postcard, tumble-down cottage. Of course I don't have good broadband. I also don't have a motorway running up to my front door. And it doesn't take me five minutes to get into the centre of London. But yet we choose to moan about whether or not we have super fast broadband in every single location. Well, it's treated like a bloody human right, isn't it, these days? And yeah. It's not a kidney. It's, <laughs> you know, it's No, no it's not. And if people want to move, people should move. And if, if people end up moving into a more urban location, or rather, if people move into a, a higher density location in order that it is commercially viable to provide them with a service like broadband, because there needs to be a tipping point in the number of subscribers to make it viable for a business to serve, and then that's how that's the that, system should that work. sounds a little bit like a market again. It does, and the point being is that everyone should be allowed to decide whether or not that is what um, they want for themselves. And if they want really fast broadband, then move somewhere that's got it. If they want a really nice view from their window, which you or I comparatively do not have, then go and live in the middle of the country somewhere. People have a choice. People have a choice. Should we, should we wrap it up there? Well, I think that's wrap a good, it up that's there. A good people have a choice, which is what we fundamentally believe in. Well, thank you very much for listening. This has been Sounding Board with me, Nick Elliott. And me, Andrew Elliott. And if you want to go to soundingboard.com, you can uh, download previous episodes, unless this happens to be the first one, which I doubt. Um, unless and you've listened to all the other previous episodes already, in which case you could go to soundingboard.com to leave us a message. Um, or otherwise get in touch. Brilliant. See you soon. Bye.